The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop making jokes about IP law and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 197 with guest Jonathan Zook, recorded live Monday, October 2nd, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.telerik.net. Com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's probably lost in Bulgaria at this very moment, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. We're here as we are every week. Richard and I. How are you, Richard? I'm doing well, sir. Got my new recording rig all set up, so I'm having a good time. That My microphone comes to me now. That's awesome. Hey, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to talk about this a lot, but... If you haven't read my post about the big monster machine that I'm building, go check it out if you want to be mad because you don't have it. <laughs> Finally building a computer in my league. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in Richard's territory now, and uh, I, I feel a little uh, excessive. I mean, it, it does feel sort of, uh, well, how should we say, you know, a, a little opulent. Indulgent? Indulgent. You but, get over that. But you do get over that when it comes online <laughs> and it just goes, hmm. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've always wanted to build the machine of machines with ridiculous specs, and, and now I'm doing it. But it's dead. It's dead on arrival. Motherboard is dead. We're going to see if Newegg uh, is as good as everybody says they are about helping customers that, you know, good customers. Every customer. So we'll yeah. find out. I haven't found I, out I yet. like going through that process because that's really the measure of a company is not how things work, but how things work when there's a problem. I've never had a problem with them before. I don't expect to have one now. I imagine that's the truth. Hey, I got an email. You do? 
Yeah, let me read this to you. All right. Dear Carl and Richard, I was just want to say thanks to you guys for a great show. It's really fun listening to other people that are as passionate about .NET as I am. Cool. I particularly enjoyed listening to Robert Scoble talk about his experiences. He is definitely somebody that looks at the big picture and is not afraid of company politics. Yeah. Wow, that's certainly Robert Scoble. Absolutely. He's not afraid of anything. <laughs> that's true. A point I'd like to make. I find that the two most coveted attributes in a programmer is the appreciation for simple, elegant solutions and plain common sense. Mm. It seems as though there are too many of us that enjoy making life unnecessarily complicated within the systems we write and design. Yeah. 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 It's easy to complicate things these days with a wide array of abstraction mechanisms we have at our disposal. I always respect programmers and architects that come up with simple and scalable solutions this inevitably pushes the system's complexity into the business rules where it belongs yeah this is a smart person yeah he's got it going on no complaints unfortunately i still find that a lot of programmers and architects make life unnecessarily complicated for the sake of job security I feel that the one of the most overlooked issues by non-technical and technical management is the responsibility of the programmer, on top of getting the work done on time and in budget, to write self-documenting and maintainable code. Yeah. Can you get a sense that what John was up against when he wrote this? I, I, I know what you mean. I have a sneaking suspicion that he was probably going through somebody else's code and cursing them. Probably. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done that. <laughs> keep up the good works guys and once again thanks for the great show kind regards john hibbert london we got some fans over there in the uk yes we do are we going back to vbug someday i hope so you know we are going to europe very soon in fact yes. we're going to barcelona on november barcelona. 7th through 10th of course i'm talking about the dotnet rocks tech ed barcelona sweepstakes at tech ed europe we can send a lucky winner uh on a plane to Barcelona. That's right. We'll pay for your plane ticket and we'll pay for your ticket to the show, which isn't cheap, and your hotel. All yeah, covered. come with us. Come with us. The only way to win is to go to uh, .netrocks.com slash Barcelona or click on the Barcelona button. And uh, we're going to ask you a few questions. If you haven't registered with us, all you got to do is answer a couple of stupid questions about what language you use and crazy stuff like that. And then... Every week you get to answer a question about the week's show. And we and have a new question. We have a new question every week. On October 24th, we're going to pick a winner from all of the winners of those weekly contests. And by the way, if you win one of the weekly contests, you get the question right. You get your choice of coveted, coveted .NET rock swag from our useless crap store. <laughs> Can I have an amen? Come and get it. That's right. So, last week's question was, what famous Disney movie did Rob Connery mention on the show last week? Oh. The answer? Got me. Tron. Tron, of course. I love Tron. Tron. Yeah, he drew some, he drew some great parallels with, with the Tron movie, some great metaphors. One of my favorite geek movies. All kinds of little gags in there for people who know how to program. And we had a whole boatload of winners this week, and we picked one at random. And the winner is Didier Stevens. Didier, I'm not sure if I'm reading your name right, but uh, none of my German friends were online to correct me on the phonetic spelling of this. And uh, he's from Brussels, Belgium. 
And congratulations, Didier. And we're going to give you your choice of swag, and you're in the running, of course, for the big prize. Now, if you want to know more about TechEd Europe, go to shrinkster.com slash HHH. Easy to remember. And this is the developer, TechEd Europe developer. There's also right. an IT half. Also, uh, I want to mention the .NET 3.0 2006 Roadshow coming to a city near you this October. Uh, that would be now. There's simply no substitute for being trained by the world's leading experts in any subject, and the same holds true for the .NET 3.0 framework. Three powerhouse speakers, Jubal Lowy, Michelle Rubustamante, and Brian Noyes, go on a multi-city road show in October for Dr. Dobbs Journal. You can check that out at www.net3roadshow.com. That's the number three. They offer profound insight on the technology and its applications with material that goes well beyond anything that can be found using conventional training sources, often presenting original techniques and breakthroughs. In addition to the frontal presentations, they use numerous conceptual demos and original tools and utilities. The demos are not only useful in the seminar, but afterwards serving as a starting point for new projects and as a rich reference and samples resource. This is one roadshow you don't want to miss. So you can register today with the promotional code 6RBLOG and save $200. Check it out at www.net3roadshow.com. Also, this week we're not here, are we? No. Are we here or are we not here this week? I can't remember. No, while you're listening to this, we're in Bulgaria right now. You bet. We're in Bulgaria at DevReach, devreach.com, and we're having a great time, aren't we, Richard? Oh, yeah. You know we are. <laughs> <laughs> also, next week, we're going to be at the uh, Tulsa Tech Fest, Saturday, October 14th. And uh, if you're in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, you want to check that out, tulsatechfest.com. And before we get uh, to the guest, Richard, I would just like to uh, welcome back to the show for just a few minutes, Mr. Greg Brill from Infusion down in New York City. Hi, Greg. Hello, Carl. Hey, uh, give us an update on the New York City tour. How's that going? Uh, you, people don't remember, uh, we had you on a few weeks ago and you offered this pretty spectacular deal to anybody who wanted to come move to New York City, that you'd fly them there and you'd uh, give them a nice uh, apartment to live in and all this stuff. What, what, what's the status of that? Well, the status is as follows. It's been amazing. I actually was really surprised. I mean, you know, I'd hoped for, I mean, you know, getting quality people in New York, like I say, is really hard. You wouldn't think it, but it is. Um, but the response from the DNR folks was, was awesome. Uh, a couple things surprised me. The number of qualified people that replied uh, was was pretty stunning. And the other thing was, it just came out of internationals. I got Denmark, South Africa, Australia. I got some folks from different parts of Europe, pretty much like all over the world responded to it. In fact, the farther out they were, the more they wanted to come. So it was, uh, that was very interesting. I hadn't really thought of that. But uh, in fact, we already uh, have hired two. Um, One of them is from the UK and another one is from Denmark. So I didn't see that coming. Wow. But it's it's really been great. Um, actually, can I? You know, a lot of people ask the same questions. Can I just give a quick answer? Because yeah, the sure. New York tour program is is still going. If you guys want to come to New York and work for an investment bank for a year, on uh, we'll take care of your uh, of your rent and all that. Um, is uh, you know, some people had kids, which which I thought was pretty brave. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I would get. It wasn't just one. It was like a few of them were like, you know, you know, I've got like a you know a two year old son, or I've got like a fifteen month old daughter. Mm. You know, uh, um, if you got kids, um, I. I, I I don't know if this is the program for you. 
Because, you know, New York, things are a little bit smaller. and We're not giving you a a four-bedroom house. An apartment in New York is expensive enough. Yeah, and and as I say, you know, for for the folks that are coming, sometimes, you know, you might have a common space that you're sharing with with other people. Um, And so, you know, if you've got kids and stuff like that, it's certainly much more difficult. Okay. Um, But, you know, hey, if you really wanted to do it, why not? A lot of international people were asking about, um, you know, know, does it apply to international? The answer is, yeah, absolutely. You know, quality is quality quality. The only thing I would say there is, you know, visas can vary. Mm-hmm. So you'll want to give some time. Some countries are very easy, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some are a little bit more difficult. So uh, just, just allow some time uh, to work through you that. You seem to be a guy who's got a lot of irons in the fire. You're always coming up with these great ideas. What what were some of the other things that uh, we, we, we were talking about? Oh, right. Um, you know, as, as I've mentioned to you, we're growing really quickly, and but we're trying to grow extremely smart. You know, we only hire really bright people. Everybody says that. In our case, it's true. Good lieutenants. Um, and so quality is really key. But um, we take a lot of risks uh, in terms of, of, of our growth, too, by betting on quality people. Our clients, uh, the banking clients, you know, most the New York financial clients have like a London counterpart. I mean, London is a very big heavyweight yeah. in terms of you know financial uh, institutions. So pretty much every client we have has a shadow government uh, or a head <laughs> office or a subordinate office in London. Great. And our clients recently have been asking us to open a London office. And uh, I could do that, and I could send you know my folks from Boston or Toronto or New York City. Those are the office locations we have in a fusion development. Um, but I would really rather hire aggressive people locally to help us build that office. Well, we have a lot of listeners in London, a lot of friends over there in the Reading area. There's the uh, the VBug group, and lots of, lots and lots of user groups all yeah, over the you UK. Know, what, I, what I would say is, you know who this is for? I mean, first and foremost, you got to be a great .NET technologist. You know, you got to have attitude, aptitude, and, you know, some good experience there. But if you're like, you know, if you're in a job or whatever, and you're thinking, you know, I'd really like to build something, you know, whose profit I would participate in and, and running, I actually want to see not only what it's like to be, a, you know, a technical developer, but I actually want to be an operator, too. I want to actually build a business from the ground up. Um, we'd like that to be done with local people. Um, I mean, we would send over management, you know, to help. But in the end, I'd really love to see if it would be possible to hire some really good grassroots talent in the U.K. and help us build that London office with our guidance and our clients. Um, so, you know, call in, uh, call in London if, if anybody's uh, got the <laughs> attitude and interest in doing something like that. Love to talk to you. All right. Anything else going on before we hang up? Well, one last thing, um, you know, always, always interesting. You know, the other thing we're, we're looking at doing, too, is we have a new group. It's called STUD. And it's that uh, stands for Strategic Technical Uber Developer. It's kind of our cute little name. Um, I'm actually looking also, so far we've talked about really senior people. Um, I'm actually looking for talented juniors, um, folks that might only have a year, a couple of years of .NET, but they're loving the stuff and they want to go deeper, but they want to become like an expert in a SharePoint or a BizTalk or something like that. Yeah. Um, studs for us are roving experts, you know, that go and help all of our other developers. We have about 104, hmm. um, you know, when they have sophisticated projects. They're kind of like Uber, Uber dudes. Thing is, they got to be damn good. And so what we're doing is running a training program, an intensive boot camp. In fact, you and I talked about even working on that together. Yeah, I'm sure uh, Mark Dunn, Mr. BizTalk, could uh, to, could help you out there. I'd love it because the two skills there are BizTalk and SharePoint. So what I would like to do is get a bunch of you know more junior. I mean, senior could qualify too, um, but you know, get those folks there. Get their get us get them to our Toronto office. Put them through an intensive training program. Yeah. Um, also, some business training as well, and turn them into these studs. And the way the program would work is, you know, you would come, you join us. Um, bit of a risk because you can wash out of it. You know, it's going to be tough. 
tough. Got to be young and energetic. Let's say that. I wouldn't say young, but you certainly got to be young energetic. at heart. You got to be young at heart. Young at heart. <laughs> and uh, you know, the thing there is, you know, you come there. The you know, the way we would do it, be able to afford trying out, is the salary would be really low while you would, uh, you know, be going through it. And then if you succeed at the end of it, you know, and you, you do real good, then then we raise you and you're an expert in in that. Uh, that, that thing there. So that's, uh, that's what I got going for you, Carl. So Greg, I know you said this on a previous show, but one more time, what's, uh, how do people get in touch with you? You know what? Just email me directly. We have a job board on infusiondev.com, but you can just email me. Uh, gbrill, G-B-R-I-L-L, at infusiondev. That's I-N-F-U-S-I-O-N-D as in dog, E as in Edward, V as in Victor, infusiondev.com. Okay. Say hello to Nick for me. <laughs> I will say hello to Nick. All right, take care. All right, let's bring on Jonathan. Jonathan was on show number nine, I believe. And uh, he's an old friend of ours from the way back days of .NET and even before in VB land and access land. He is a widely known and respected leader in the technology industry and as a professional software developer and IT executive with more than 15 years of experience, Jonathan Zuck brings an insider's perspective to his role as president of the Association for Competitive Technology, or ACT. Since assuming leadership of ACT, Mr. Zuck has provided analysis, commentary, and background information on a wide range of technology issues to the media, the public, and Congress. He has been called on as a technology expert from the major news networks, including CNN, CNBC, and ABC. He's a frequent contributor to national and local radio news programs and is consistently quoted in the trade and popular press. A prolific writer whose work has appeared in trade publications, including PC Magazine, PC Week, Windows Tech Journal, and in several books, uh, Jonathan is in high demand as a speaker at trade conferences around the world. Also an MSDN regional director for the D.C. area. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, it's great to be here again. Your show your show rocks, man. It's blown up. Yeah, it certainly has. Yeah, this is uh, show 197. So it's, been a, it's a little while since you've been on. Yeah, too long, too long. And man, it might have even been show number six. It was a really early show. And I suppose I could look it up, but it doesn't matter. It was a real early one. And we were basically talking about the same things um, then that we're going to talk about now. We just have a lot more people listening. Um, the Association for Competitive Technology, this is something that you got out of being a professional developer. And I, and I got to tell you, folks, Jonathan was the bomb in the days of, you know, early V-Bits, uh, Access, ADO, um you know, he did a lot of lot of hand coding, a lot of work himself, and then also got into a software company where he was, you know, he had a staff working for him and and uh, wrote all sorts of articles and uh, and you decided to throw all that away and start educating congressmen and senators on how to use their computers so that when they get up in front of people, they don't sound like dorks, right? Yeah, and obviously I made the wrong choice. But uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, the, uh, the 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 funny thing is, I never intended to leave all that behind. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, some of it is uh, historic. You know, I got this email, and the subject said, "You're perfect." And you know, today we would try to filter that out with a spam filter, right? right? right. You know, but at the time, I thought, "Oh, maybe I am," and I opened it up, and uh, and Mike Sachs, <laughs> who was the founder of Act, uh, you know, asked me if I would take on this role uh, as spokesperson for this trade association, 
part-time, he said, right? So I could continue being a productive member of society and be a mouthpiece for, yeah. uh, you know, IT companies uh, around the U.S. Uh, but it just grew and grew and grew, and part-time became full-time, became overtime, became all the time. And uh, <laughs> so some of the uh, development, software development I was doing, uh, you know, by necessity fell to the wayside. Jonathan, you're going to have to get uh, in touch with the guy who keeps describing the Internet as a big pipeline. Who is that guy, Richard? <laughs> this is that Stevens? Stevens. That Stevens. Stevens. The Honorable yes. gentleman from Alaska. Yes. Yeah, collection exactly. of Well, tubes. you know, the Alaskans have pipelines on their minds, so they, they try to liken <laughs> everything to a pipeline probably. What's up you with know? that, though? That's I mean, cigar he... you're smoking is like a pipeline. But this, you know, this guy is a perfect example of why you're needed around D.C., right? I mean, what is he thinking? Yeah, there's a real range of people um, here and a real range of understanding about the Internet and about technology generally. Um, and you see, you see a lot of well-intentioned but uh, badly misdirected uh, public policy. I mean, uh, one great example is uh, spyware legislation, right? I mean, it, all it takes is a few people to read some articles about spyware and they know that it's bad, right? And right. so they want to create laws to make it illegal, and they have no idea what they're talking about. Well, yeah, exactly. And so the, the first thing they want to do is try and define spyware. Yeah. But the problem is, as soon as you define spyware, you're also including the eBay toolbar, Windows <laughs> updates, right. children's online protection software, et cetera, yeah. because the technology of spyware is the same as the technology in those beneficial things. And, and right. so a lot of what we try to talk to policymakers about is, is focus on people's behavior uh, rather than on trying to regulate technology itself, because otherwise you'll catch too many dolphins in the tuna net. Yeah. And I, I was thinking that, of course, the moment you define those things, it's not hard to make software that escapes that definition, and yet it still accomplishes the goal sure. that the spyware guys have got. And that's and that's exactly right. So all the good all the good actors are now illegal, and the bad guys have simply found a way around, around your yeah. definition to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So in that particular case, we would go to legislators and say, look, why not look at conduct? Like, uh, was this installed on your computer in a sneaky way? Is it collecting information on you? Is it difficult to uninstall? Those things kind of transcend what technology is used to do those things. Right, right. But instead focuses on the conduct and the intentions of the people. And I guess, you know, a lot of those senators would be so happy just to, to have a little bit of, you know, tech buzzwords under their belt so they can impress their friends and... They get a little bit overzealous, maybe. They want to focus on the technology. Well, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and again, it's all very well-intentioned. I mean, it's, sure. it's under, easy to understand. You're hearing from your constituents that spyware is a real problem. And, uh, you know, the other problem that legislators have is that they really only have one tool to bring to bear, right? I mean, they can pass a law. And so, so often you find laws being passed to make illegal things that are already illegal, right? Like identity theft or something yeah. like that. right. And, and when in reality it's about getting more resources to organizations like the FTC that are actually doing something about the existing laws. Yeah, this stuff's so, already illegal. We just don't have the resources to prosecute it effectively. That's exactly right. So passing another law to make it really illegal, right, doesn't really uh, accomplish <laughs> an awful lot. But uh, So those are some of the kinds of uh, discussions that we find ourselves having uh, in the U.S. and abroad. What's going on with spam in Washington? What What's the status of legislation, anything real? Is there anything with teeth 
going on? Is there well, anything actually, they can do? Well, um, actually, there was something that ended up being called canned spam um, that uh, was a piece of legislation that did put into place some fairly um, uh, harsh um, guidelines for sentencing and fines and things like that associated with spam that some, some folks have been prosecuted under. So that's something in which there's actually been some progress. Um, but, I, you know, spam is another one of those things that, you know, where ultimately the solution's going to come uh, in some combination of user practice and technology, right? It's, right. The, a law isn't going to really solve the problem. Yeah. Ultimately, laws are only as effective as their enforcement. That's exactly right. So if, you've got an, if you're getting an email from abroad, uh, trying to sell you Viagra, then, uh, you know, there's nothing the U.S. laws are going to be able to do to prevent And they it. certainly don't have the bandwidth or the resources to go hunt down these people one at a time. So uh, that, That's exactly right, and those people aren't breaking laws that we can even enforce, even if they had the resources. Right? Yeah, I mean, just being able to find one person by their email address could take days. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. You know, we're speaking pretty broadly right now about issues that a deal with, that are uh, significant to anybody who has a computer. Uh, but there's, you know, you started out as a developer, John, and then you ended up into this. So this, I got to imagine there's a significant aspect of this that affects developers. Well, I mean, th- there often is because what you'll end up finding is that regulations on technology affect what technology can be uh, delivered uh, to developers. You know, when we're dealing with these antitrust cases, uh, both here and, and uh, more recently in uh, Europe and in Korea, um, regulators start to dictate what kind of technology can be present uh, in the operating system. And that's the point at which developers are affected the most. If, if some set of libraries or something like that is removed, uh, it's going to have a dramatic effect uh, on software developers for sure. Yeah, I think the most famous one recently was the 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 media player less edition of Windows. Oh yeah, there were actually was another version of Windows that not a lot of people ever saw. Well, yeah, it's exactly right. So um, the European Commission uh, developed this theory that by including a me- media player functionality uh, in Windows, that all of the content providers would just give up on all other formats, and that you'd only have websites that that only supported Windows media format. And so they wanted to. Uh, in the uh, give consumers a choice of getting a version of Windows without media player functionality, right? It's one of those things that somehow makes sense, uh, you know, in the hallowed halls of the commission. And mm. as soon as you take it out and market test it, yeah. you ask somebody, well, well, why would I want something with less functionality in it, right? And <laughs> right. That's exactly how the, uh, the market responded. Um, Microsoft did, in fact, engineer and release in Europe a, a version of Windows XP called Windows XP-N, uh, that uh, had all the media player functionality removed, including the underlying media APIs. And, right. uh, wow. and uh, they sold about 1,200 copies. No OEMs picked it up. And uh, I, I assume the 1,200 copies that were purchased were people that thought N stood for, you know, new technology. Or, or neato. Like <laughs> Got it by accident, yeah. 
And, uh, yeah, Windows XP Nuke Edition, right? And, uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's amazing how regulators, you know, again, with good intentions, can come up with a remedy that's just uh, completely counterintuitive. One of the things that we talked about with the, the European Commission was the impact this would have on developers. If they, if they were successful in making this alternative version of Windows uh, make it out into the marketplace, if you were a developer trying to write an application that relied on media technologies, uh, you'd end up having to write two versions of your software with no additional customers mm-hmm. and then check to see if it was there, um, download it to, if it wasn't, if they were connected to the Internet, etc. So you couldn't rely on, uh, uh, on the technology being there. It's, it's as if uh, a version of Windows uh, was put out uh, where all the printer drivers were, remo- were removed, for example. And, uh, and so there's often an effect on developers that gets ignored by regulators. Do you um, are, make no bones about, you know, you grew up in Microsoft technology, you know, you're pro-Microsoft and stuff. So what would you say to the people who are, you know, a little uh, wary of, you know, the evil empire kind of stuff? They're not, maybe they're Microsoft using Microsoft.net, but they're also using other things and, uh you know, does this does what you preach apply to them as well? Well, fundamentally, um, technology integration uh, is a part of progress in almost any technological field, right? I mean, there was a point at which when you bought a car, it didn't come with seat belts, and you had to buy those uh, in an aftermarket, right? And uh, then uh, seat belts uh, started being packed into cars and radios and uh, airbags and things like that. And, the, and there's no question that it does have an impact uh, on the aftermarket, uh, for example. But things like stereos for cars uh, still have an aftermarket because there's still a market for people that want something different or better uh, in their car. But it could very well be the case that uh, in a particular uh, instance, uh, as it was with printer drivers, that the inclusion of printer drivers in the operating system pretty much dried up the market for aftermarket, uh, you know, printer drivers. Uh, however, that was a m- very beneficial thing for users of Windows. Well, for users of Windows and developers of Windows, right? right? I mean, every one of us that wrote an application uh, had to uh, either license or or write a series of printer drivers for a growing number of, of printers. I mean, when this all first got started, there were three types of printers, but now there's a thousand types of printers. So it seems like m- m- these things tend to be gray area value judgments then. There isn't really a, I mean, printer drivers, you can definitely see that the benefits of bundling that with the OS clearly outweighs any, you know, competitive uh, stuff. You know, I'm sorry, Mr. Printer Driver uh, company, but your company is going out of business. That's all there is to it because for the greater good, there you go. So, you know, who who makes those decisions? I guess well, Microsoft does, it's right? regulators that, uh, um, that have, you know, lent their ear to, you know, the, the competitors that are concerned that their market, uh, you know, might begin to evaporate. And that's happening right now with security companies. Symantec and McAfee are concerned about the new security features of Windows Vista. Um, you know, things like patch guard on the kernel. Something that everybody asked for. They wanted Windows to be more secure. But, of course, there's a bunch of companies out there that are negatively affected by this. That's exactly right. There's a cottage industry around throwing up walls to protect what's perceived as an insecure operating system. 
So what I mean, do you I, think? I mean, one, uh, one analogy is, uh, is like a tire uh, repair kit, right? So if you get a flat tire, uh, you can pull over, you're in the rain, you get out, you jack up the car, you put a patch on the tire, you pump some more air in it, and you get back into the car and drive off. And, and you can have a whole uh, you know, cottage industry of little kits for repairing a tire. But the technology's been evolving for some time. It's still a little bit expensive of tires that repair themselves. Mm. So to the extent to which those tires then become standard on cars, you're, you're going to have an adverse effect on the market for tire patch repair kits. But it's better but, for but the general public. But isn't it a consumer public. benefit to have a tire that repairs itself rather than to have it get out and fix it? So we can't assume that every market that exists to fix a problem should continue to exist rather than fixing the problem. You could also argue it the other way in certain cases, could you not? I mean, that's what I was saying about value judgments. I mean, the printer drivers, the security stuff, that's clearly a situation where the, the, the greater good outweighs the benefit of these individual companies. But what about other things, right? What about things that, that are sort of optional, you know, well, that aren't and, critical? And, and again, it does become a little bit of a value judgment, but, you know, consumers are the ones that often make demands, right? They, they're the ones that say that I want this functionality. I mean, for example, media functionality, uh, there isn't a single, oper- you know, significant operating system on the market today that doesn't come with multimedia capability. It's an expectation in the marketplace. So to, to say to Microsoft, well, because you have high market share, you have to intentionally handicap your, uh, your operating system vis-a-vis your competitors mm. uh, can get to be a little bit ridiculous, right? So, I mean, uh, you, you won't find an operating system right now that doesn't have built-in media capabilities. Speaking of built-in media capabilities, um, do you think that, I mean, let me just ask you this. Why do you think Windows Media Player sucks so bad? And I don't mean that that it sucks. It works great, but there are you know the Winamp is pure is clearly a much better product. And do you think Microsoft is sort of holding back, or do you think they just don't do media players as well? I don't know. I'm, I I try very hard to be out of the business of making value judgments about the technology. Yeah. What I say instead is that it's pretty easy for me to get Winamp on my machine and the people sure. that like it and think that it's better, just like the people that go get a new stereo for their oh, car. Oh, I know, I know, and this illustrates the they point, too. I, I, I'm just, uh, it was a total aside. I was wondering if you think, and Richard, I know what you think about this, but... Well, you know, it's funny because as much as I like Winamp, I don't think Media Player is such a bad player when I compare it to something like Real Audio, where I, it's spyware masquerading as a, as a media player. Right, I you know, hate There that, are yeah. worse media players out there. This is very true. Yeah, and, and you know, Winamp also does have some of that. And, and amazingly enough, it's Real Networks that's gone to the European Commission to complain, not Winamp, right? I mean, these are the guys that, uh, that can't find any other reason that they may be losing market share than the fact that there's a media player in Windows. I mean, one of the ironies of the, of the Commission case is that every other media player on the market had during that same period increased their market share, except real. <laughs> so then you have to go, hmm, hmm, maybe it has to do with the fact that you're collecting data on people. Maybe it has to do with the fact that, you know, that you, you've got all these pop-up ads. It could, no, yeah. no, no, it couldn't have to do with that. <laughs> it has to do with the fact there's a Windows media player. Couldn't have anything to do with the quality of your product. Goodness, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Richard. I, you know, I, I like the fact that media player is essentially 
stripped down and, and free of all that stuff because the other, the alternatives obviously aren't. But uh, yeah, I was just, I, I'm always in the back of my mind. I'm curious as to whether A, they're holding back or B, you know, purposely or B, they just, they just don't care enough to put that many more cycles into it or they're doing it for the benefit of the third parties. I don't know. I mean, there is the point that that product doesn't make the money. It needs to be there because that's right. part of the suite. Right. But it's not a profit center unto itself. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, fundamentally, if you look at Notepad, right, I can tell you that it's not the most interesting text editor on the market either. <laughs> but uh, I certainly wouldn't want all the text box functionality of Windows pulled out. True. Right? Think about what would happen to every dialog box and every other thing that we use now inside of our applications. They I would agree. be gone, too, just so that we could get Notepad off of the machine. All right. Let's get back to benefits for developers. What do we got? What are we looking at here? I mean, what's, what's the story for developers? I mean, we had some, some general statements about tools going away and things, but what are some cases that you can point to that developers should, should have been aware of or anything that's coming up? That we should be concerned. Well, the other with. issue that's coming up in the, and uh, around the world, frankly, is uh, is how intellectual property is going to be treated. Um, I, I mean, that's something for which there's going to be a lot of discussion over the next few years uh, around the world. Um, you know, it, and uh, as the, as the U.S. in particular is making this sort of migration away from production towards uh, innovation, uh, you know, our entire sort of GDP is going to start to rely on the protection of intellectual property abroad. And uh, so, uh, you know, what's the extent to which, uh, um, you know, patents are going to be respected and uh, new technologies are, are not going to be pirated, you know, in, in China or by the European Commission? And, mm. uh, and I think that those are issues that every developer's got to be thinking about. Um, at the same time, you know, there are a lot of really ridiculous patents uh, that get through the system, too. So the, the, the system here is in, definitely in need of some uh, fix-up and some reform, uh, you know, so that the, the dumb patents, like, you know, putting a dot on a map or something like that, don't get through. Um, but the patents for real innovation, things like uh, image compression, uh, voice recognition, you know, uh, facial recognition, etc., are still in place and still hold force uh, around the world. Jonathan, did you know about? Do you know about USA Video? USA Video, I don't know them. So USA Video, it's, and the reason I know about this is because the guys from my town where I was born, and uh, I had I know people who uh, professors in college that had this guy, and he was a sharp guy. He basically back when we were pushing him data with twenty four hundred baud modems filed a patent for a technology that pushed video over public networks. And he, his patent is so broad that it covers all video that streams over the internet or over, you know, cable TV. It's a broad, hugely broad patent. He owns it. He's got it. He's a guy. He's got, you know, some backing, but he doesn't have, obviously the money or the resources to go after companies for it. Is this uh, one of the byproducts of, you know, just being intellectual, intellectual property issues versus, you know, good old fashioned capitalism? Well, I, I, you know, as with every issue, uh, it's not black and white. Um, 
you know, there's, you know, software doesn't have uh, a monopoly on silly patents, right? There's a there's a patent for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust cut off, for example. <laughs> and 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 you know, so there's a lot of different ways to approach that problem, right? I mean, one would be to eliminate all the patents uh, that involve bread, right? I mean, if you did that. <laughs> You would certainly eliminate patents like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but you'd also eliminate patents for serious research into things like preservatives or production methods or, or, or you know, uh, you know, uh, other types of uh, technologies that might get bred into more people's hands, etc. All in an attempt to get rid of the peanut butter and jelly patent, right? You have a lot of discussion uh, about software shouldn't be patented, etc. And uh, and I and I and I take issue with that because there's a lot of really important research and development uh, in the software field. I think what we need to do is improve the quality of the patent system itself so the patents aren't overbroad. And in the case you outlined, Carl, uh, what you have to make sure is that a patent isn't just simply a statement of the problem, but in fact a detailed description of a solution. And then that patent is then the one that should hold for. Very often these really broad-based patents our, our statements of the problem. We need some way of, you know, getting video over public networks, and that's my patent, right? Well, well, that's really wasn't that helpful, right? By reading your patent, I didn't end up with the ability to do that, and that's supposed to be the purpose of the patent system. Yeah. I've been noticing, I mean, I'm in the process of filing patents right now, and I get the sense that the patent office is a lot more tech-savvy today than it was a few years ago, and we are getting better patents for the most part. I think that's definitely right, Richard. Um, I, you know, a lot of this is a byproduct of the 90s, right, where, you know, you had people putting up business plans on napkins and venture capitalists making sure that every idea that anybody had became a patent. And the patent system was just overloaded uh, during that time period. And, and, and since then, the patent office has come a long way, and, and there's been some reforms to how they look at things, something called the second pair of eyes for example, and, and there are some reforms being proposed that allow for the industry to have input uh, sooner. In, in other words, uh, you'll see a patent being announced and you have the opportunity to say, hey, that's not really innovative, and, and, and help the patent office along. So we're hoping that those things uh, over time will help to uh, clean up the overall quality of the patent office without somehow eliminating software from patentability, which I think would be a big mistake. And I think you're you're right that we need some way to protect our original ideas, and patents seem to be the best option at the time. Uh, maybe we'll come up with something better in the future, but I don't really know. It does also seem that big companies like Microsoft and IBM and such have gotten really good. They have a whole arm of producing patents on a routine basis. It's quite an industry. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I you know... IBM and Microsoft and others are, you know, uh, getting patents in the thousands. And uh, uh, to some extent, it starts to feel like it's a place that small businesses can't play. But the reality is that there's more patents per capita that come out of small businesses. And those patents by small businesses are, in fact, referenced more frequently by other patents than those that come out of big businesses. So uh, not only do patents play a significant role to small businesses, but small businesses play a significant role in the patent system. Yeah. I think that patent is about the only thing that a small business has really got to perfect itself other than just straight up old fashioned innovation. 
I mean, I, well, that it is straight up old fashioned innovation, right? And and it, it, some people like to call it an insurance policy in case of success, right? <laughs> most of, most of your insurance policies are aimed at failure and disaster, right. but this is just in case this actually works. Uh, you know, I, I might see some return on this investment. And uh, yeah, and I have some proof that I did this first. That's right. Uh, they, but I now now I'm starting to creep into this area of we're going to have to consider filing internationally and. Boy, it gets complicated fast. Every country has its own system. Uh, that's exactly right. And so there are um, attempts to figure out how to simplify that uh, through the uh, uh, World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, in Geneva. Uh, you know, the Europeans are toying with the notion of trying to create a European-wide patent. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's always complicating factors. You know, in Europe, one of the big issues is languages. You know, every country wants every patent to be in their language, too. And Europe has 25 languages now, so that kind of dramatically increases the costs associated with patenting. And so, you know, some of these guys that are looking to preserve their culture, uh, while understandable, I think also need to get practical about what it takes to uh, facilitate economic growth. Jonathan, um, what if you're not a inventor developer? I mean, Probably the majority of people who listen to this have a job. You know, they go to their job, they write code. Um, what kinds of, you know, you know, what, what, what would you say to these people? I mean, what do they need to be interested in? And why should they be uh, listening to this show anyway? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a broader question I might not be able to answer. But sure. uh, <laughs> um, you Touché. need to get the picks on this show. But anyways, the... Um, <laughs> No, I think that uh, that everyone needs to be concerned about the process of innovation, uh, even if you're not at the sort of starting point of the innovation chain. You know, as an inventor, uh, you, you're still gaining efficiencies. I mean, these could be add-on products that you're purchasing, or improvements to the platform that you're using that come as a as a feature of uh, uh, of innovation and the protection of intellectual property. And, and so that ecosystem that you exist in is a, is a function uh, of uh, innovation and the protection of that innovation. And so I think just because you don't see yourself as filing a patent in the next year uh, doesn't mean necessarily that you're not benefiting uh, from a system that's making your job more streamlined, uh, more powerful, et cetera. Yeah. So basically, what's good for the company is good for you by way of your job. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, by way of your job, but also how you do your job, right? right I mean, sure. a new tool that was developed as a result of uh, a substantial R&D, right? You know, like, uh, uh, what, what, what's, uh, you know, like lead technologies, for example, and oh, their, yeah, their yeah. image manipulation libraries, et cetera, right? So they're doing genuine R&D that, that ho- hopefully the result of which is that your job has gotten easier, uh, if you need to employ that functionality. And so by licensing that technology, you've saved yourself five or six years of development time you might otherwise have to spend on a part of your application. Lead is an interesting case because unlike a lot of software tools for developers that uh, don't have you know royalties, so you buy them once and then you can use them as much as you want, these guys went another route. They they basically said, look, we've got a lot of really high-tech stuff in here that, you know, we don't just give away. 
and uh, you sort of have to make a more of an investment in licensing and that kind of stuff. So I guess they've sort of driven away the more frivolous, I just want to show some images with zooming, uh, you know, developers, and they have really serious tools. Right, and and, and, they're, and they're making a serious investment in the production of those tools, right? I mean, right. If nobody licensed them, guess what? They would stop developing. Yeah, it's obviously working for them. Well, yeah. and the people that they're licensing it, right? I mean, that's the part you don't want to forget. I mean, right. somebody's actually deciding that it's enough of a value add to their process of development that it's worth taking that license. Yeah, I find that's it the interesting, these kinds of licensing models. I've run into it as well with other companies where it's basically, look, if, we'll give you this product, but if you make money with it, we want some of the money. Right. I mean, everybody should uh, should be free to experiment with their business model, right? I mean, you know, the market has a has a real resounding way of rejecting business models that it doesn't like, right? You know, which is the phone not ringing. Yeah, right. Well, you, no, no better way to say no than to not buy it. That's exactly right. So if it's getting the job done for you and it's, you're, it's providing a, a value add that's greater than what it is you're paying for it, then you're going to buy it. Otherwise, you're not. And those guys are going to have to experiment with a different business model. Yeah. But what we need to do is get out of the business of somehow dictating what business models are okay and which aren't. I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. And you can find them online at www.telerik.com. You know, that's the interesting thing is that we governments and a lot of these laws seem to have this idea that maybe we can encourage innovation by pulling media, the media player out of uh, Windows. That'll make better media players. Uh, when the opposite, you know, really came to fruition, nobody wanted that. But, you know, at the same time, they're leaving the field open so that these newer technologies can you know, come to fruition. I think back to, you know, these days networking is in the box and we all like it that way. But when it first, when PCs first started to be networked, there was a lot of different technologies and a lot of different companies that made products. And there was a whole bunch of innovation there, which ultimately wound up into uh, a dead solution. There's only one way to do networking and it's ethernet with TCP IP. Well, yeah, there's a network effects thing too, that, uh, you know, a lot of people value from, uh, you know, derive value from, uh, you know, single solutions, right? I mean, I, you know, it's like fax machines. You know, if there was, if if every fax machine on every desk used employed some different technology, the value of all fax machines would, would go down, right? I mean, because nobody could actually receive the faxes you were sending. Right. So there's there's some value then to to you know having the world on a particular network standard. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, those kinds of evolutions are, are inevitable, I think. And uh, But at the same time, revolutions that, that may alter that altogether, right? If there's a new Internet that uses a new technology or something, you um, th- that could happen just as well. I mean, nothing that's going on right now uh, was predictable, you know, 15 years ago. Jonathan, tell me a story from uh, from your vast experience with dealing with this stuff of the thing that made you slap your head and say, you know, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard or seen. 
uh, <laughs> maybe something funny, somebody misspoke or, or well, a lot of it is, is, um, is, is who gets to make the decisions. Right. And, 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 and that's, that's the part about this that, that frightens me sometimes because I, I have a great deal of faith in the marketplace that, uh, if I bring a product to market, I put a price on it or some sort of a you know a pricing model like a license or something that that people will get it if it gives them value and they won't uh, if it doesn't and uh, and and you see incredible market share shifts uh, uh, you know throughout this industry and as the industry starts to move online, those market share shifts are going to happen uh, more frequently than they even did in the store. I mean, way back when we were buying our software at Egghead. Uh, you know, we saw uh, as much as a 65% market share shift happen in 18 months. And that's when you had to buy software and install it on your machine. Physically had to go pick up a yeah. box at the that's, store. That's exactly right. right. And right. so to have that kind of shift then tells me that we have a fluid and dynamic market. And so, I mean, you know, in the early stages of the Department of Justice's antitrust case against Microsoft, you know, the now sort of world-famous David Boyce, uh, right? He was the... Uh, he was uh, All right. uh, Gore's attorney at yeah. the Supreme Court, for example, and uh, he was the you know he was hired as a hired gun by the prosecution by the Department of Justice to prosecute Microsoft, and they were reading these now sort of famous emails from Microsoft, and uh, he was reading one out loud, right, for effect, and he got to the word L O G I N, and he said Login. Yeah, <laughs> and to me, that was an indication that the wrong people were putting themselves in the position of making these. Right, right, right. I, I mean, you know, a bunch of people in pinstripe suits shouldn't be telling me what technology is available on my platform. Shouldn't be telling me, you know, what technology I should be able to develop. Right. Uh, that uh, those are really things that make more sense for the marketplace uh, to uh, to decide. And, and you know, and, and like I say, I mean, you know, uh, there are there are companies that uh, that have continued to stay ahead of Microsoft and continue to thrive in the marketplace despite, you know, huge competition from them. You know, I mean, money hasn't passed up uh, uh, Quicken yet, right? right. And, and, and uh, so it's, it's, there's nothing that's inevitable if you're willing to continue to innovate and continue to make the best product on the market. Although it was only through government intervention that Quicken wasn't part of Microsoft. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a separate issue, right? But uh, from the standpoint, it wasn't a question of Microsoft money somehow, uh, you know, having so many resources thrown at it and bundling deals and everything like that weren't sufficient to unseat Quicken. That's, That's why true. Microsoft wanted to buy. And right. so ultimately, the, the best proof of the quality of the product was Microsoft thought it was more reasonable to acquire the company than to try and beat it in the marketplace. That's yep. right. And, I, you know, I mean, an acquisition strategy is, uh, you know, is just as good, right? I mean, that you have to count that as a success <laughs> for a product in the marketplace. Absolutely. It's a compliment to Quicken. Sure. I mean, I mean I, I'll tell you one other story, um, okay. which I hope is instructive from my own experience. Uh, I used to uh, be a part of a French software company called Mattisys, and we had a product for Windows 2.0, if you can believe it. Yeah, man. But just to give you a sense <laughs> of how long my beard is. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how many of you guys, I don't know if you guys remember Windows 2.0, but the, I do, GUI, sure. the GUI of Windows 2.0 was something called MS-DOS Executive. Yeah. Right, it looked a lot like Norton Commander or something. It was a very sort of text-based interface. It was for, horrible uh, <laughs> uh, for this graphical uh, competitor to the Mac, right? Um, and so we uh, we put out something called Simple Win, uh, 
hmm. um, which was, uh, you know, like a little disc in the back of a, you know, paperback, you know, with a 20-page manual, and, uh, and it had something that was basically a graphical program launcher, um, you know, with little icons and little sub-windows and things like that. It's so program let's organize manager. your applications and launch them. And we had a graphical file manager, too, with, you know, folders and different views, and you can drag and drop, you know, your files around. Uh, and there was a little image viewer uh, as well. And, uh, you know, we, uh, it was a pretty popular product, and we ended up getting a bundling deal with IBM uh, so that those, you know, briefcase uh, PCs that they had, uh, you know, would have more of a GUI interface. Oh, man, you're bringing me back here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so then what happened? Well, you know, I, we made about a million dollars with that product, right? Very nice. And, uh, um, you know, then what happened? Windows 3. Well, what was in Windows 3? Program manager, file manager, right? Yeah. And, and so the very need for that, such a tool didn't exist anymore. You should have sued them, man. Yeah, and I had a choice, right? I could sue them for fixing what was an obvious deficiency in their product or take that million dollars and invest it elsewhere. And the net result was another product called Object View, uh, which was a great uh, client-server front-end uh, for Windows uh, to get the SQL Server data. And, uh, you know, that, right. that ended up being sold to Knowledgeware down the road, Right. So, I mean, you know, there's two ways to go. You can expend your creativity and energy on lobbying and lawsuits, uh, or you can do what I thought we were in the business of doing, uh, which is write new programs that uh, add value to customers. I've said it before on the show and in public, and I'll say it again, that I believe anybody who's in the software business, that is, selling software, has got to be prepared for a short life Anybody who, and what that means is staying agile. That means when your million dollars comes in, you don't buy big brick and mortar buildings and hire 50,000 people. And, uh, you know, you stay small, you stay agile because it, you have a limited life. It's always about the next idea, not the last idea. And if the purpose of your software is some sort of rubber band and glue, fix it to some other piece of software. Right, right then you sure. have to assume that the shelf life of your software is even less than it might be otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's only good for one version. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And, and uh, so either you're going to update that software because there continues to be a need for it, but it's, but it's a new need, or, or you may need to move on. Can you imagine and, authors uh, suing Microsoft for coming out with new versions of software that they write about, and now their books are obsolete and nobody's buying them? That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly so right. So it's about expectation in this business. It's very rare that you become a QuickBooks and into it. Uh, you know, those those are very very small numbers of companies that can do that. I think I can name a number of companies that that uh, continue to excite me with the uh, innovations uh, that they continue to produce. I mean, every time I get a new co- copy of Photoshop, I- I'm completely amazed at the new technology that Adobe has built into that product. And, I, and, and, you know, I mean, and, and I, that's why I don't think they'll ever be passed. Because, you know, every time there's, you know, Paint Shop Pro or GIMP or some of these other tools comes out and it's neat, then, then Photoshop comes out with something like Vanishing Point. And it's like, oh, were you guys here? I, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's like it, it, it's a, they, they completely turn the, turn the market on its head again. And, and it's really impressive. And, uh, you know, I, and I think that the, we want to create an environment that both demands and rewards yeah. uh, that innovation. 
That being said, and you're the one who brought up Adobe, what's up with PDF? Yeah. Talk well, about yeah, a virus. PDF's a funny one, right? Um, there's a couple of things going on there. Uh, one is that uh, you guys know, and probably all your listeners know, that the number one request for Office for the last eight years or something has been uh, PDF export uh, support, right? The ability to save as PDF. Yep. And uh, that's been a request for a very, very long time. And, uh, and so as, as these things happen, basically what happened is the PowerPoint group, um, no, not PowerPoint, publisher, the publisher group getting tired of, uh, you know, being thought of as, uh, you know, the, uh, the little redheaded stepchild of, uh, of office, uh, wanted to really play with the big boys in the publishing arena, and uh, and uh, but nobody was supporting pub files, right? And so they went ahead and did the work with this sort of publicly available specification. I mean, the PDF specification's been free and open to use uh, since its inception. They did all the work and came up with a save as PDF for publishers, so that you could send the PDF to uh, to printers and things, and and uh, it's a great really feature. use it to create uh, professional work. And so then the rest of the office team has said, ooh, cool, <laughs> you've done what a all the work, idea. so we'll add it now, too. And so suddenly Office was going to have Save As PDF support. Um, well, uh, you know, Adobe, uh, I, I think really mistakenly, decided to take issue with Microsoft uh, adding this capability to Office uh, because, uh, you know, they thought it might affect their, um, you know, Acrobat business or something like that, and... Uh, well, I mean, they, they did. Decided to complain about it. The real kicker was Word because converting Word documents or, or printing them actually to the Adobe printer that creates a PDF file is the main reason people buy Acrobat in the first place, right? Well, and that's right. And so this would eliminate, in theory, eliminate that market, right? Um, but you know, Adobe is like the third largest software company in the world, right? I mean, it's not. Uh, all their all their revenues aren't coming from Acrobat, and and Acrobat can certainly be used to create much more sophisticated PDFs than would ever be created as a save as uh, out of Word. Um, but yeah, the the apparently you know especially like the Acrobat elements or whatever uh, is is a product that uh, that that might cease to have a market uh, if that functionality is added to Office. But if you think about it again, Office customers have been asking for that feature. Right. For a long time, and so you know, you can't create an environment in which somebody being responsive to their customers uh, is somehow illegal. You know, Office customers pay not a small amount of money for Office either. This is not like free software; they're not giving away PDF capability. You got to buy the upgrade. Everything costs money here. Well, and that's what Adobe wanted. Adobe wanted them to charge a little extra for that feature and then pay Adobe, right? But- but that's not right. No, they don't even want them to pay Adobe. I mean, they had a couple of things. One is they wanted to be the ones providing the technology for it. Right. But, uh, but barring that, they wanted it pulled out of Office and made available by Microsoft as a separate product you had to pay for. Well, I think that's what they ended up asking for. But I thought the first round was we, we want you, know, you to charge extra and then send that to us. No. Well, what they wanted originally didn't have to do with charging extra. They wanted Microsoft to simply license Acrobat technology and embed that right, in okay. Office. That's it. Right. Yeah. So that would have involved paying them a lot of money but right. not charging us extra. And Microsoft said, no, thank you. Well, yeah, partly because Microsoft doesn't need all of Acrobat. They're trying to do something much more straightforward. 
uh, and smaller, right? Um, and uh, so then Microsoft offered to pull it out of Office and make it available as a free download. Um, but uh, but Adobe's not happy with that either. They want it to be something. And I I have for. I have to think that the the quality of Acrobat uh, and the or the lack thereof uh, has something to do with why they said no. I mean, uh, this is one program that is constantly updating itself. It does one thing, you know, it saves as PDF, as far as I'm concerned. And it's constantly updating itself, pulling down all sorts of spyware crap, crashing. Um, It's really been a nightmare lately, so much so that we recommend, I think Scott Hanselman pointed out, Foxit Software's uh, free PDF reader, that if you're not creating PDFs, at least if you just want to, the, I'm just talking about the Acrobat Reader here. Uh, then, you know, this is free. Foxitsoftware.com. A lot of people are switching to that as a reader. Well, uh, exactly. And, and there are 1,200 um, software, uh, pieces of software that make use of PDF specification, right? Wow. Without paying a dime of royalties to Adobe. Wow. So that's the marketplace as it exists, right? So, I mean, to say now Microsoft can't play with everybody else, again, uh, feels a little bit ridiculous. Um, I'm, the other thing that's going on that's giving you know uh, Adobe some pause. If you remember, Adobe's real history uh, dates back to PostScript, right? Right. They, they invented PostScript because uh, of trying to create a, a more generic uh, printer language, so right. that you can begin to approximate this sort of WYSIWYG world that we've all been striving for. You know, right. most of our careers. And the Windows print subsystem has uh, has been uh, well. Let's just say it hasn't uh, grown a lot, you know, in the last ten years. Right. And so <laughs> a, a, a lot of high-end printing applications, in fact, bypass the Windows printing subsystem and go directly to sort of high-end printer drivers to get their work done. And so finally, what Microsoft again, at the demand of uh, its customers, has really overhauled its underlying print subsystem. So that you can really do uh, really cool, you know, gradients and and very specific color separations, et cetera, and get very accurate uh, print pass through and at a you know with good performance. And one of the byproducts of an improved print subsystem um, was the ability to create uh, a PDF-like thing, a portable document that that contained all of the information necessary uh, for display or printing. And uh, and that was something called XPS or the you know XML paper specification, right. right? And so that was part of Windows Vista as well. And so and Adobe's also you know somewhat concerned about that because they're worried that XPS will supplant PDF uh, as that as that sort of portable document standard. Right. And uh, you know I think the rest of us simply view that as uh, uh, again a byproduct of something we all wanted in the operating system, right? It's a little bit like notepads, right? I mean, you know, we want an improved subsystem, and that involved creating a, a specification for, for output. And uh, and it's just a byproduct of that, but, uh, you know, it's going to improve everyone's Windows experience and developers in particular. You're not going to have to bypass uh, the Windows print system and, and create complex printer drivers. You're going to get back to a world where you're going to be able to use Windows sort of as designed, if you will, and yeah. still have stellar output. And, uh, that's a good thing for developers. So the European Union, Microsoft had to pay some money to 
and uh, you know, people like Mary Jo were on the show, and she was yeah, saying, about you know, a billion dollars so far. The chickens have come home to roost. You know, this kind of attitude. But other than that, you know, the the sort of behavior that Microsoft got in trouble f- with the with the FTC for with Netscape and the Internet Explorer and all that stuff. You know, they're still doing that. Um, they're still they're still bundling media player. They're still you know, it doesn't seem like a lot of stuff is happening to them uh, like that particular uh, lawsuit did anymore. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, it depends on, you know, how you define that. I mean, all around the world, people are starting to demand that they pull functionality out of Windows. It's happening in Korea, it's happening in Europe, etc., um, which is a more, much more drastic remedy than the one that was imposed on them uh, well, but, by the Department of Justice. But surely they have learned from this example of the Windows XPN that it, that isn't going to work. Have they not? Who's the they? The regulators? Well, the people, no, the people who are bringing these lawsuits about. Well, no, because Symantec and and Adobe and others are approaching them right now, right? I mean, there a lot of people are showing up on Europe's doorstep because they've got a more sympathetic ear than they found from the Court of Appeals here. I mean, the fundamental problem is, you know, how do you allow Microsoft to continue to improve its products and be, you know, a modern operating system, uh, and at the same time, you know, make sure that uh, these 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 competitors in the sort of Windows add-on market are able to continue to exist. And, and that's, not a, that's not a clear clear picture. Do you think any of these lawsuits have affected the, the ship date or quality or content of Windows Vista? Uh, well, there's actually uh, there was quite a big discussion about the possibility of having to delay shipment of uh, Windows Vista in Europe um, for this very reason, because the commission hasn't given clear guidance to Microsoft as to whether or not they're going to later come back and say, oh, you needed to remove patch card, or oh, you needed to remove XPS, etc. So, I mean, I, right now, Microsoft doesn't even know what it's going to take to produce a legal operating system in Europe, and it could be that it'll delay shipment. Now, would it, would it not delay shipment in the U.S.? Well, it probably wouldn't delay shipment in the U.S. because U.S. regulators aren't uh, you know, lending their ear to some of these complaints. Can't, by... can't European MSDN subscribers download it just like we can? Uh, you know, that's a possibility. I mean, there's a lot of issues related to languages and other localization issues that uh, that might come into play. But the Europeans are also hoping to try and make their remedies global in nature, too, which is another thing that's a little bit frightening. When you consider that there's antitrust officials in you know, about 20 different countries around the world. What if they all wanted to impose remedies that were global in nature, but all slightly different? Uh, You know, we could end up with 20 different versions of Windows. What's interesting is the European Union is fast becoming, if it's not already, the the largest economy in the world. Of course, everybody's looking to China in about 20 years, but right now the European Union's economy is is as approaching or as it surpassed the United States i don't know does anybody well it's pretty know? big but their but their the gnp actually went down last year okay i mean it's a, they're having troubles because they continue to uh, overregulate uh, their market suffice to say they're a quite a large big. economy and they're looking to take over you know the us in terms of that spot of course that's what they need um you know that has quite a bit of influence on the decisions that 
they make and the the cases that they hear, does it not? I mean, they're trying, you know, they're a voracious economy. It seems like Microsoft is an easy target for them. Not only does it protect the the businesses in the European Union, but it also puts a chink in the armor of uh, of Microsoft. Yeah, I, I mean, what I consider ironic about that notion, of course, is that it's what they're the people whose complaints they're listening to are a bunch of American multi billion dollar companies. I was just thinking that real networks from Seattle. I, I mean, it's really a form of venue shopping to them, and I think that. Uh, the European Commission is ultimately doing things that will have a negative effect on European. That's business. a very good point. I think instead what you have is an antitrust division at the Commission that's seeking to be a world leader in antitrust enforcement, and therefore they're, they're, they're giving a more sympathetic ear to any opportunity to kind of strut their stuff as antitrust officials. This would be a good time to ask our European friends to send us an email of what they think. I mean, obviously, you have a different perspective than we do in the States. But I imagine, you know, uh, I don't know. Let's, what do you guys think? Send us your emails. We'll keep take this discussion to the blog or something. All right, Jonathan, uh, it's coming down to the end of the show here. And we usually ask people at the end of the show these days, you know, there's anything not related to your company or whatever, just sort of neat and cool, a toy, a, a software, a website, something you've seen that you want to share? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I, I've been spending most of my time on uh, filmmaking uh, these days. So, no kidding. Uh, I, I use, uh, I mean, my, my free time, I guess I should say. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm deeply immersed in things like Photoshop and After Effects and uh, hmm. uh, a bunch of uh, Adobe products, as it turns out. Using Premiere? So, Premiere as well, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of new functionality there. I don't know if I've come across any uh, websites that have uh, that have blown me away uh, lately. I, th- I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's almost there in terms of this social networking, things like Flickr mm, and, yeah. and uh, MySpace and things. I think a lot of, there's a lot of dust busting that still needs to go on in that space. Uh, yeah. Really exciting, but, uh, but, but you can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel there. Right. All right. Well, Jonathan Zuck, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again. It's always, I always have fun bumping into you at uh, regional director events and conferences and book signing parties in New York City and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Always a pleasure to see you as well, Carl, and, and, uh, and you, Richard. So thanks for having me on. And, uh, Thanks, John. Um, you know, like I said, I think we'll. Uh, everybody's got to be concerned about this stuff. Not not all the time, but maybe five percent of it. All right, and check out actonline.org. Thanks again. We'll talk to you later, and we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. 
Net Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Time for-